If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the History Extra podcast. Brought to you by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Matt Elton. Today, we have a recording of the first of our virtual lockdown lectures. This talk was delivered on the 9th of July 2020, so a little has happened in the interim, but it's still a topical and timely subject. Our speaker is Keith Lowe, and the title of the talk is Should I Stay or Should I Go? The Problem with Historical Monuments in 2020. Keith has written a new book called Prisoners of History, What Monuments Tell Us About Our History and Ourselves, published by William Collins, on which this talk is based. Well, this has been one hell of a year, hasn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, when I raised my champagne glass at midnight on New Year's Eve, I thought that I was toasting in the arrival of 2020. But after just a couple of months, it suddenly felt like we'd been transported back to the flu pandemic of 1918. A couple of months after that, there was the 75th anniversary of VE Day, and we were suddenly in 1945. Then George Floyd died in Minneapolis, and all of a sudden, we were in 1968. In America, there were protests all over the country. People began to tear down one statue after another statues of Confederate generals, statues of slave owners, even statues of Christopher Columbus. Before we knew it, the Black Lives Matter movement had spread to Britain, to Europe, to Australia, to New Zealand. We all started having our own protests, our own demonstrations, and our own tearing down of statues. And it was still only June. 1918, 1945, 1968. All these layers of history seem to be piling up one on top of another. 
and uh, until 2020 was beginning to look like a, a, a sort of some kind of historical puff pastry. But I don't think we should be too surprised about this because in reality, it's probably not so different from the way that we've always lived. We can't escape the echoes of the past. We're all prisoners of our history, which leads me nicely on to my book, of course, which just so happens to be called Prisoners of History. Now, in the book, I take just one of these layers that, that we've been experiencing recently, this 1945 layer, and I focus on the same thing that the Black Lives Matter movement has also been focusing on recently, monuments. Monuments aren't just lumps of bronze and stone. They are powerful symbols. That's the reason why we put them up, isn't it? Because they symbolize something important to us. Our Second World War monuments are some of the most dramatic and emotive monuments that we have. In Britain and America, we tend to revere them. But in other countries, they are just as controversial as anything that we've seen recently. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. Monuments, what they represent, why they're so controversial, why so many people want to tear them down, and what, if anything, are the alternatives to tearing them down. So let me begin by telling you a story about another place where statues have been torn down. Poland used to have hundreds of statues of Lenin, of Karl Marx, of Felix Dzerzhinsky, and so on. But in 1989, after the country threw off communism, all these statues started to come down. 1989 and 1990 saw a, a real sort of bonfire of the vanities in Poland. Hundreds of these mementos of communism were removed. But there were some that stayed. And the ones that stayed tended to be the ones that related to the Second World War. Now, this is interesting because Poland has a really difficult relationship with the Second World War, particularly with the end of that war. On the one hand, Poland was liberated by the Red Army. You know, if, if it weren't for the Soviets, Poland would have been utterly destroyed by the Nazis. But on the other hand, their liberators were also quite brutal. The Soviets snatched a, a huge lump of territory for themselves. They imposed communism on a, an unwilling country. They arrested, tortured, executed anybody who opposed them. So you see, Soviet war memorials posed a very real dilemma for Poland. Should they stay or should they go? In the end, most people didn't want to dishonour the sacrifices of ordinary soldiers, so they decided to leave almost all of these war memorials alone. But they were never really fully comfortable about it. Now, I want to show you one of these monuments. Right, this is the monument to Brotherhood in Arms in Warsaw. Not only is it a memorial to the men who lost their lives, it's also a monument to friendship between the Polish and the Soviet peoples. It was built in 1945, straight after the end of the war. On the top of the plinth, you can see there are actually, it's a bit unclear there, but you can see there are three soldiers, three Soviet soldiers striding forwards, you know, weapons in hand. Standing below them at the four corners of the plinth, 
are four more soldiers, two of them Soviet, two Polish. Now, all of the statues that are on this monument are made out of bronze from melted down German ammunition. So, you know, there's a really strong symbolic significance here, even in the very material that they're made of. The inscription on the plinth reads, glory to the heroes of the Soviet army, comrades in arms, who gave their lives for the freedom and independence of the Polish nation. Now, in 1992, there was a furious debate about whether this monument should stay or be taken down. Some people said that, you know, it was a symbol of communism and it just had to go. Other people said no, it had nothing really to do with communism. It was just a thank you to the ordinary soldiers who had died during the war. They pointed out that the monument showed Polish heroes alongside Soviet ones. So, you know, to tear it down would insult the memory not only of Soviet soldiers, but also of Polish ones. But then, of course, other people pointed out that the Soviet soldiers stood on the top of the plinth while the Polish ones were down below, which showed the real re relationship between Russia and Poland. And so the arguments went back and forth. And in the end, the whole thing became so toxic that the council decided to just brush it under the carpet. They announced that the monument would stay and they hoped that everyone would calm down and kind of forget about it. Fat chance. 15 years later, this issue exploded all over again as people debated whether the monument should be taken down to make way for a new tram stop that they were, they were planning. Four years later, the same thing happened all over again. This time, the local government took the monument down. They actually went ahead and took it down to make way for a new underground station. They promised that they would put it back up again as soon as the station was built and then just went ahead with their plan. But of course, as soon as the monument was down, protesters began to demand that it stay down. So the debate started up once more. There were arguments and petitions to City Hall. There were newspaper articles, TV debates. Op opinion polls were commissioned. Eventually, after four more years of controversy, it was the protesters who won out. The statue would stay down. This photo that you can see on the screen is from 2011, in fact. You know, the monument hasn't stood in this square since then. It's currently in storage with a sort of vague promise that it will one day be displayed in a, a museum at the other end of the city. Now, what this story shows is that if there's enough discomfort over a statue, if there are enough people who, who genuinely hate what it represents, then whether we like it or not, some kind of reckoning is on its way. Not everyone in Warsaw wanted to have this monument come down. In fact, according to the opinion polls, most people wanted it to remain. But enough people hated it that it, they eventually got their way. Now, since then, hundreds more statues have come down all across Poland. In 2017, the Polish government announced that they wanted to take down every Soviet monument in the country, including those devoted to the war. The legacy of communism was to be completely erased. Now, 
I'm not sure whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. What worries me is that monuments like this represented an important part of Poland's history. So by tearing them down, Poles will no longer be confronted with that history on a day-to-day level. And, and they won't be confronted with all the discomfort which comes along with that history. And for me, that discomfort is important. You know, history is not supposed to be something cosy. If you're serious about your history, it's essential that you confront the darker sides of your past as well as the glorious sides. But on the other hand, it's easy to get carried away with this idea of history. In many ways, monuments are not really about history at all. They're about our communal values. The whole reason why they're put up in the first place is to act as symbols for those communal values. When those values change over time, or when they become not nearly so communal as they once were, well, then a monument is living on borrowed time. I think there are lots of parallels between what happened in Poland and what we've been seeing in recent weeks. Statues of people like Edward Colston or Cecil Rhodes or even Christopher Columbus in America no longer represent values that unite us. Once upon a time, they represented glory and adventure and even philanthropy. I mean, uh, Edward Colston in Bristol is a perfect example of this. Now, Colston was revered for centuries because he gave away a fortune to help the poor in Bristol. He helped build a hospital. He supported several schools and and churches. If all you knew about him was this, you would think that he was a pretty great man. But Colston's fortune was built by trading in slaves. According to the historian David Olasoga, Colston was directly responsible for the deaths of 30,000 people who died in the holds of his slave ships. And when you know that, well, then his philanthropy begins to look rather hollow. Statues to men like this have become so divisive, so polarizing, that I suspect that sooner or later, they probably would have been taken down anyway. The people of Bristol started campaigning about this statue to Colston back in the 1980s and 1990s, coincidentally at around the same time that the Poles were campaigning against the statues to Soviet friendship. As in Poland, there was a lot of resistance to tearing the statue down. And as in Poland, the council tried to brush it under the carpet in the hope that the whole issue would go away. But as I've said, when there are enough people who hate a statue this much, then some kind of reckoning is on its way. For better or worse, that reckoning took place on the 7th of June, this year, when protesters took matters into their own hands and tore the statue down. So there you have it. On the one hand, in Poland, you have a government who's trying to heal the traumas of 1945 by taking down war monuments. And on the other hand, in Britain, you have protesters who are sort of channeling 1968 in order to heal the traumas of slavery. And if that was all there was to it, then, you know, so much the better this would this would probably be the end of my lecture but 
on the same day that the Colston statue came down, this happened in London. Another group of Black Lives Matter protesters spray painted these words on Winston Churchill's statue in Parliament Square. Now, this was 1945 and 1968 colliding in a single image. Twitter went berserk. The international press also went a little bit crazy. This image was broadcast and printed in newspapers all over the world. And it inspired at least one piece of copycat vandalism in another country. Prague in the, in the Czech Republic also has a, a statue of Winston Churchill, which stands outside the, the University of Economics. And this too was spray painted with the words, he was racist and Black Lives Matter. Now, for someone like me who has been writing and talking about monuments for years, this was absolutely fascinating. A gulf seemed to be opening up between those who su supported the spirit of 1968, who were happy to deface these monuments, and those who supported the spirit of 1945, who were horrified by it. So what happened next? Well, the next day, this happened. This protester climbed up onto the cenotaph in Whitehall and tried to set fire to the British flag. Now, for those of you who are, are listening in other countries and who might not know, the cenotaph is the monument that was erected in London after the First World War to honour the soldiers who, who have died for the country. It actually has the dates of both the Second World War and the First World War carved into its sides. So in some ways, this is an even more potent symbol. This is 1918, 1945 and 1968 all rolled into one. This is what happens when emotions run high. Everything gets jumbled up until nobody can see straight anymore. This protester thinks that she's protesting against racism but she's standing on a monument that's devoted to people of all races and all classes. Half the people commemorated by this monument died fighting against Hitler. So, you know, if she wanted a target, she's really chosen the wrong one. Once again, social media went completely mad. People started calling for this woman to be hung, drawn and quartered. And then, some poor guy got mistaken for this woman, and then he also started receiving death threats, even though he was nothing to do with her. The whole world was getting muddled up. Now, I, I would like to say that historians kept their heads throughout all this. I, I'd like to say that we poured oil on troubled, troubled waters with our calm incisive commentary. But historians are human and, you know, we can get just as emotional and muddled up as everyone else. Take a look at this opinion piece that was written in the Daily Mail at the end of June. This is by Dominic Sandbrook, who is a brilliant social historian, by the way. I, I really do recommend his books. He, he writes about British social history, um, particularly 20th century history. Great, great author. But here, I think he's letting his emotions get the better of him. This article is supposedly, it's supposed to be about the statue that stands above um, 
the gate to Oriel College in Oxford, a statue of Cecil Rhodes. Now, Cecil Rhodes is a figure who is every bit as controversial as Edward Colston. On the one hand, he left a huge amount of money to charity, including to Oriel College. But on the other hand, he was also one of the leading figures in the conquest and exploitation, quite brutal exploitation, of Southern Africa. Now, unfortunately, in this article, Dominic Sandbrook doesn't even try to engage with why the uh, uh, why, why Rhodes was such a controversial figure in the first place. Instead, he spends most of the article talking about the gallant students of the college who died during the Second World War. Now, what has the Second World War got to do with the Cecil Rhodes statue? Well, absolutely nothing. It's a purely emotional reaction to an already emotional situation. You attack me with your 1968, I'll defend myself with my 1945. Now, there's nothing particularly unique about this story. I mean, there are plenty of people on both sides of the political spectrum who are getting very emotional about these issues. And all of us are getting horribly muddled up. This is the world as we know it in 2020. Polarization has become the norm in so many ways, and this is just the latest example of it. Most people are just a bit confused, but there is a very vocal group on the left invoking the spirit of 1968 who want to tear monuments down, and there is a very vocal group on the right invoking the spirit of 1945 who want to preserve monuments as they are. And both of them believe, truly believe, that they have history on their side. Now, it seems to me that this is what lies at the core of these problems, is this thing called history that seems to be at the heart of everything. And the reason why I put that, uh, that word in air quotes is that there are, of course, different definitions of the word history. On the one hand, there is the strict academic definition of history, which involves the gathering of evidence, the sort of weighing it up uh, to sort of come to a considered nuanced conclusion. Um, let's, take a, uh, let's take a look at the next slide, um, which is that, that picture of Churchill again. Now, looking at this, in purely intellectual terms, there's nothing particularly wrong with this graffiti. You know, Churchill was not only a hero, but he was also, let's face it, fairly racist, especially by today's standards. He was also sexist and classist and a bit of an alcoholic, not necessarily the sort of person you would want as a role model at all. This graffiti shows that even Churchill is a prisoner of history. If you want a true history of the man, then you have to include his faults as well as his many virtues. But this is not our only definition of history. There's also a much broader and vaguer idea of history that includes all the things in our past that have made us who we are today. Not just historical facts, but also our communal memories, our communal myths, and the stories that have been told to us and that we've told ourselves again and again over the years. According to this idea of history, 
the Second World War was not just a conflict between nations. It was also a it was kind of a mythological struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Churchill, as the leader of the forces for good, has been transformed into a kind of knight in shining armour. This is the man who saved us from the Nazis and nothing else matters. So you see, we're also prisoners to this kind of history, whether we like it or not, because it goes right to the heart of who we think we are. This statue is part of our national identity. So as a consequence, you know, I think if there were any serious attempt to, to tear it down, we, I really think we'd have a, a revolution on our hands. As it was, just this little bit of graffiti was enough to cause outrage in the press, counter demonstrations by the far right, and in the end, the protection of the state. The statue was boarded up and guarded by police. Now, it seems to me that it's this second definition of history, this the, the, the emotional version of our past, that's far more important to us than any strict academic definition. I mean, in any battle between the head and the heart, the heart generally tends to win out, doesn't it? Historians like me can try to get people to stick to the historical facts and ignore everything else, but it doesn't really make any difference. Most people would rather see the world in terms of heroes and villains, good and evil, right and wrong. And this applies across the political spectrum, right as well, uh, as, well as left. Indeed, I think you know, when we put these monuments up in the first place, it's this version of history that we're really expressing. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Stalin is not standing on a plinth above a city. He's hidden among the trees like some kind of fairy tale troll. Squirrels come and sit on his head. Birds poo on him. You know, this is not a place where Stalin is respected. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash history extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So, what do we do? What do we do about this? How do we address this crisis? And how do we stop crises like this from happening again in the future? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is to take some of the heat out of the argument. Where I live, for example, in London, the mayor has quite sensibly announced a review of our monuments. And I really welcome this because I think it'll give us a chance to look at some of these monuments with our brains as well as our hearts. I don't know who's on the panel of this review, but I figure as long as it has a broad cross-section of viewpoints, there's no reason why we couldn't come to some kind of consensus. In other words, potentially, this could be something that brings us together again, rather than something that's driving us apart. I think also that a review might give us a chance to be a little bit more creative about how we deal with some of our problematic monuments. I think we can learn a lot from the Germans in this respect, who have also had to learn how to deal with a difficult past. Much more difficult, in fact, than anything we've had to deal with here in Britain. I've got another monument for you to see. This is a monument in Hamburg to the soldiers who died in the First World War. Now, World War One is, of course, not nearly as sensitive a subject as World War Two in Germany. Germany suffered millions of casualties in this war, and you know it's only right that they should be allowed to mourn their dead. There's just one problem. This monument was built in 1936, at the height of Nazi power. So, you know, it's it, it's also a relic of Nazi values. If you look at all those marching soldiers in their coal scuttle helmets. This is not just a memorial to the dead. It's also a homily to the Nazi values of glory and conquest. Now, in the early 1980s, the people of Hamburg were faced with the same questions that we're facing today. Should this monument stay or should it go? In the end, the Hamburg Senate decided that rather than tear it down, like lots of people wanted, they would build a second memorial next to it, this time a monument to the Second World War. And this is what it looks like. Where's all the martial glory here? What's happened to all those neat and tidy dreams of conquest? This monument shows where those rows of marching soldiers ended up in a landscape of horror, brutality and pain. If you go to Hamburg today, you can see these two monuments standing side by side on the Damtor Dam. The ideas of the 1930s and the ideas of the 1980s are displayed together in dialogue with one another. History has been honoured, but so have the values of a penitent Germany. Now, Germany is not the only place where things like this have been done. Um, protesters in Hungary have done something similar. This is in Hungary. 
It's called the Monument to the Victims of the German Occupation. It was put up just a few years ago in, in Budapest. As you can see, it depicts an angel being attacked from behind by an eagle. The angel is, of course, Hungary, and the eagle represents Germany. Historians everywhere hate this monument because, of course, Hungary was no angel during the war. For most of the war, Hungary was an ally of Germany, and the Hungarian government was deeply complicit in their crimes, including the Holocaust. Lots of ordinary people in Hungary were also very uncomfortable about this monument. They actually started protesting against it even before the monument was, was erected. But rather than trying to tear it down, which is probably not possible in the political uh, uh, atmosphere in Hungary, they decided they were going to build their own counter monument instead. So they, they, did, they did this. this uh, they, they made this sort of uh, counter monument, which is sitting in front of, the, uh, of that monument, um, which is dedicated not to this sort of mythological version of history that you can see there, but to what they consider a, a more nuanced and more painful version of history. Um, you can't really see it here, but in front of the statue, uh, there is a display of objects. You can see some of them strung out on the, on the fence that's there. Uh, these are objects which have been brought to the site by ordinary Budapest citizens, photos, letters, um, Jewish stars, uh, suitcases belonging to, to Holocaust survivors, that kind of thing. The display changes every day as different people bring different objects to, to add to it. It's what the organisers call a living memorial. And so once again, you have a dialogue here between two different versions of history, Hungary as victim and Hungary as perpetrator. You also have a dialogue between the mythological version of history up above and the more sort of down-to-earth view of history below. That banner that you can see that some protesters have put up kind of sums it up. It reads, loosely translated, falsification of history is like intellectual well poisoning. Now, it strikes me that maybe we could do something similar with some of our statues to colonial figures. You know, the, the glories of empire could be juxtaposed with the horrors of empire. Rather than rely on one single image, why not have two different images or more in dialogue with one another, calling one another to account? Of course, these are controversial subjects and context is everything. And by context, I don't just mean, you know, putting up a counter monument is not the only way of doing it. You could move the statue to a different site, for example, which also has meaning attached to it. This is a statue of Stalin that I came across in a park in Lithuania. Now, Stalin is, of course, an extremely controversial figure, not only in Lithuania. He was even controversial in the days of the Soviet Union. This particular statue was originally torn down in the 1950s, but about 20 years ago, it was resurrected and put in this monument park. As you can imagine, lots of people in Lithuania were horrified. This man was a, he was a monster. 
He was responsible for denying Lithuania its nationhood for more than 40 years. He was responsible for deporting hundreds of thousands of Lithuanians to gulags. So how can anyone justify taking them out of storage and putting them on display? But the owner of this park points out that here, Stalin is not standing on a plinth above a city. He's hidden among the trees like some kind of fairy tale troll. Squirrels come and sit on his head. Birds poo on him. You know, this is not a place where Stalin is respected. In the same park, I came across uh, this bust of Lenin, another monster from history. Now, what could be a better way of undermining men like this than putting them in a field full of llamas? Never underestimate the power of ridicule. Now, we have our own forms of ridicule here in the UK. And I, I want to point out that it's not always a bitter kind of ridicule. We're actually rather good at poking fun at our monuments, you know, when we remember to have a sense of humour about them. This is a statue of the Duke of Wellington, which stands outside the, the Gallery of Modern Art in Glasgow. Now, the Duke of Wellington is potentially a very divisive figure. You know, on the one hand, he was the hero of the Napoleonic Wars. But on the other hand, he was also a significant part of Britain's quite savage conquest of India in the 18th and 19th centuries. That traffic cone on his head is not something that happened recently. It's been up there since the 1980s. Every now and then, the council come and removes the cone, but someone always climbs up and replaces it. That traffic cone is now as much a part of the monument as the statue is. In fact, the statue is listed in travel guides as one of the city's must-see historical attractions because of that traffic cone. Now, during the Black Lives Matter protests, was this monument splattered with red paint? Did protesters throw ropes over it and try to pull it down? Well, no. All they did was to climb up and replace the orange cone with a black one, decorated with a, a black fist. Arguably, it's the cone that protected this monument from the same kind of damage that was seen elsewhere. So ridicule not only undermines the gravitas of a monument, it also takes the heat out of the protests against it. I think taking the heat out of this debate is something that's desperately needed right now. So I, I'm going to come to an end soon, but uh, before I end, I want to take a brief look at the future. You know, we're building more monuments all the time, not only in Britain, but all over the world. How can we make sure that these new monuments will stand the test of time? Well, the first thing I think we can do is to make sure that any new memorials we build are a bit more inclusive. And I don't just mean inclusive in terms of race. I also mean inclusive in terms of right versus left. Take a look at this monument. This is the memorial to the men of Bomber Command, which was put up in London just a few years ago. In 2012, it was. As you can see, despite the fact that uh, this is a very new monument, it's actually quite old fashioned in its design. It's made up of all these. Doric columns, almost like it's a 
kind of Greek temple rather than a, a, a modern war memorial. Inside, instead of a statue of Mars or Apollo or Aphrodite or someone, there are statues of seven airmen who look as though they're just returning from one of their, their bombing operations. Now, the only reason that this monument ever got built was because the right-wing press led a massive campaign to get it built. Uh, I mean, all kinds of people donated to put the statue up but uh, the, the, and uh, the whole monument up. But really, it was readers of the Daily Mail and the Daily Express who put up a lot of the money to build it. The biggest financial donor was a Tory peer, Lord Ashcroft, the former deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, who reportedly donated a million pounds towards it. So, you know, this was a monument with right-wing support right from the very start. How did the left respond to this? Well, the answer is that they didn't really respond at all. The left-wing press didn't fight it, but, you know, they never really got behind it either. It was almost as if the left had decided that it only really cares about 1968 and it will leave 1945 to someone else. This has consequences. I don't think that it's any coincidence that this monument is missing a lot of the things that the left might have liked to have seen. So, for example, all the men in this bomber crew are white. Now, it's true that there weren't many black crew during World War II, but there were around 500 of them, mostly from the Caribbean. Navigators, pilots, uh, wireless operators, and so on. So, you know, including a, a, a black airman amongst these statues would have been historically accurate, and it would also have been true to the values of today. Even if you decided, well, you know, it's too rare, that would just be tokenism, and you decided not to display a, a black man here, then, you know, they could have made much more of the diversity of nationalities that were in Bomber Command. There were whole squadrons of Poles who flew for us during the war. The Canadians supplied a whole bomber group to Bomber Command. There were also Czechs and Australians and South Africans and, and, and so on. Something more could have been done to the sculpture to acknowledge all of these people alongside the Brits. Another thing that the left might have wanted is more of an acknowledgement of the victims of bombing. Now, bombing Germany was not only an important way of winning the war, it was also a tragedy for German civilians. Historians had to fight tooth and nail to get any mention of this at all. In the end, all they got was an obscure inscription tucked away out uh, at the back, out of sight, sort of high up. So this monument, you know, it could have been, it could have been built as a symbol of reconciliation between Britain and Germany. But instead, it's a fairly standard nationalist monument with a fairly narrow definition of what the nation is. Now, people on the left can blame the right for this as much as they like. But if they want to have more of a say in our monuments, they have to get involved. It's no good just waiting until afterwards and then criticising the results. Likewise, the right needs to take the memory of slavery and colonialism more seriously, rather than just standing on the sidelines and, and, and rolling their eyes. 
instead of lamenting the removal of Edward Colston's statue in Bristol, take an interest in why the Black Lives Matter protesters hated it so much in the first place and start thinking carefully about what kind of monument should take its place. This is absolutely key. Our memorial culture is set to change in the next few years. As the generations who lived through 1945 pass away, we're going to have to find new symbols that represent who we think we are. We need to look to the future as well as to the past. So both sides better start paying attention and taking one another's thoughts and opinions seriously, because it's only when the right and the left put aside their differences and start acting together that we'll ever end up with monuments that can act as symbols of unity rather than symbols of division. That was Keith Lowe. His book, Prisoners of History, What Monuments Tell Us About Our History and Ourselves, has recently been published by William Collins.